It's hard to speak truth to power, but this is what the Christian church has been doing for 2,000 years. And it's important that we keep it up. How do we learn how to do that? We will discuss today in this episode. Also, the first official non-binary person in the world has reverted back to being male and male alone. He says it's all a sham. What should we learn from news events like this? It's good to be back. Happy New Year. This is The Deep End with Tim Hatch. Oh, hello, hello, hello. Deep Enders all over the area, maybe all over the nation, wherever you're from. I'm so glad that you're here joining us Tuesday nights on The Deep End Podcast. Tuesday nights. Every Tuesday night, we host this episode, these episodes, for you at 7 p.m., and today it is season three, episode 13 uh, of The Deep End, and we are in the book of Acts chapter 7, and we'll get there, but first, we've got to do some some uh, community building here for The Deep End. Like and subscribe us on youtube.com slash TV. You won't regret it. You'll always be alerted on your smartphone when we are live, it's only, actually, if you click that little bell so click the little bell next to the subscription button. We want to also welcome in our radio audience on FM 99.3 in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, Thursday nights at 7 p.m. We also want to welcome in our Spotify audience and our newest audience at WEZE AM 590 Radio in Boston, drive time, 4.45 p.m. at night, every weekday. So glad that you're here. My name is Tim. I'm the podcast host or the the show host, if you will, of The Deep End. And we want to get to the important events of the day. So let's head over to Deep End News. Deep End News. The news you choose if you could choose news. Okay, we are going to introduce to you someone new on the podcast who is also our producer. He is over there in the tech booth, and his name is Michael Michael Stetson. So yeah, hello, Michael. Michael. Yeah. Michael. You like Michael or Mike? Michael. Michael yeah. Stetson. Mike died at like age 17, and then... Michael, yeah, Michael took over. For Michael, for Mike's or Michael's, <laughs> I suppose that Michael is the preferred name, yes? Or Mike? I don't know. No, I, I met a More lot often. of middle, middle-aged guys that are like, oh, yeah, call me Mike. So I, have a, I have a brother-in-law named Mike. Yeah. No one calls him Michael. Actually, my mother calls him Michael. Or my, my sister calls him Michael when she's really mad at him. <laughs> I guess that's how it works. Mike, Michael, sorry, on this podcast is going to provide us some uh, humorous, humor, humorous, um, Interludes. You have a I will character. do my best. <laughs> yes, you have a character uh, that I like to introduce to the podcast today. I call him Minnesota Mike. And <laughs> I, wanna, I want to oh, just... Oh, you're going off- oh, to make me go there, huh? Yeah, there we go. There he is, Minnesota Mike from the great north central United States. Minnesota Mike. He's cold. Well, well I don't know much about the politics, but, you know, I'll do my best. <laughs> now, that just sounded like Irish Mike right there or Sorry. Scottish Mike. I'm not sure. <laughs> It feels like I just stole your lucky charms. I don't know. <laughs> I don't, anyway, thanks. Give a back, Pastor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> thanks for joining me on the podcast. I, it's good to have somebody to talk to when we do the news. When we get to the Book of Acts, you got to be quiet, Mike. Yeah, very well. Okay. <laughs> but we, we're going to talk about the news because there's some crazy stuff that happens in the news all the time. And I want to introduce. I want to talk about stuff that matters to Christians. And I think it matters to Christians because there's a lot of things that Christians believe that are constantly under attack in the uh, post-Christian West, and that, of course, is things like gender ideology, which is a constant in the news. It's not my fault that it's in the news. I don't put this stuff in the news. It's always in the news, or 
in popular culture and in movies and television shows and all that stuff. I mean, honestly. So anyway, this is from ChristianHeadlines.com. The man who won a 2016 court ruling to become America's first non-binary person now says it was all a big mistake and that he has legally changed his gender back to male as of this past December. I have a picture of him here. This is Jamie Shoup, America's first non-binary person. I guess he lived as a transgender for four years, was going to be a woman, and, you know, or at least a man with woman parts. (laughs) Uh, and then he convinced an Oregon judge to allow him to change his gender from uh, female, which he was at the time, to non-binary, meaning he was neither male nor female. Uh, Basic Rights Oregon called it a momentous day for queer, genderqueer Oregonians, which I guess there's a lot of those people, I'm not sure. But Shoup, who was born a male, now says he suffered from mental illness and was a casualty of a system that rubber stamps individuals with gender dysphoria rather than giving them the help that they need. Christian Headlines previously reported on Shoup's journey. On Christmas Eve 2019, an Oregon judge legally restored his gender to male and his name to James Shoup. He has a new driver's license with his restored identity. He lives in Ocala, Florida now. Um, He says that these are his words, which I think are very important for us to hear. He says, quote, the mental health system just rubber stamps you with gender dysphoria, uh, discontent with a person's assigned gender, and they don't look at the underlying behavior. He said, educating myself about why I was doing the things I was doing was key to being uh, able to make peace with it and allow me to get back to reality. And I think that's an important phrase there that he says that. My case is still being used in non-gender law, non-binary, sorry, gender lawsuits. I want people to know that I don't agree with that anymore. My hope is by making my story public, I can help reverse what I helped unleash. And last year, he penned a column for the Daily Signal, arguing it's too easy. And I agree with this. It's too easy to be legally recognized as transgender. He pressured a licensed um, nurse practitioner in 2013 to give him a hormone prescription. He says, he says, I should have been stopped, but out of control, trans- transgender activism had made the nurse practitioner too scared to say no. Only one therapist tried to stop me from crawling into the smoking rabbit hole. When she did, I not only fired her, I filed a former complaint, formal complaint against her, She's a gatekeeper, the trans, uh, trans community said. He writes, I believe that the transgender identity uh, deal is a fraud uh, perpetrated by psychiatry, the likes of something the United States and other nations hasn't experienced since the lobotomy era. And the lobotomy era was a real thing. People boring holes into their head. Oh, yeah, it was terrible. Cutting parts of their brain out to fix mental illness. you got to remember that at one time, the, the established mantra of the day was, yeah, let's do it. Let's drill a hole in your head and see if we can fix something in there. And so he says, you know, basically the same thing today, this transgender identity, gender identity nonsense being perpetrated, especially in the young, is going to, we're going to look back on this 50 years from now and say, what were we thinking? I couldn't agree more. Um, so anyway, it's something that the United States has not seen since the lobotomy era. As a result, I've, I've returned to my, my male birth sex. On January 25th, 2019, in the state of Florida, uh, the Marion County Department of Motor Vehicles in Ocala, issued him, Ocala, Florida, issued him a male driver's license. Um, anyway, he says, in the days ahead, I will be taking further steps to re- restore my birth sex to male more formally. Uh, in my 30-plus years of marriage, I am the husband to a wife. I am a uh, father to my daughter. 
I no longer identify as transgender or non-binary, and I renounce all ties to transgenderism. I will not be party to advocating harmful gender ideologies that are ruining lives, causing deaths, and contributing to the sterilization and mutilation of gender-confused children. So thank you for that, Jamie. Wonderful news there. Now, the other thing that you have to understand is that what he is experiencing has been backed up by uh, recent scientific discovery at Brown University, right down the street here from us. Yeah, Mike. yeah. Brown University published a uh, extensively researched uh, article in their medical journal, uh, basically saying that most gender dysphoric teens are so because of peer pressure and because of the, uh, you know, the uh, the flood of misinformation in media and pop culture. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't mean to be light about it, but it, it it's like a fad yes. right now. It's, you know, it's, it's exploded yes. over the last few years. But, you know, as Christians, I, you know, we pray that this will start to reverse and, and the pendulum, if you will, will swing back. But yeah, it's, it's absolute confusion. Yeah. And it's amazing how quickly it has been become mainstream and popular, like you just said, yeah. a fad. Yeah. Which, by definition, a fad is something popular. And, and the incredible bit is is just how much society or or our, our news media is just like, okay, yeah, sure, I guess that, you know. I mean, there was a time when when gender dysphoria was was an actual mental illness, and right. we were able to get you help and counseling, and you know, sometimes medication. But it's like now, it's like, no, no, no you're good. It's yes. Like, what? what? What are we doing? Right. Why are we doing that? And you know what it really is is that they don't have an answer. Right. That when you don't have an answer to these problems, and when people are going to just define reality according to how they feel, I mean, how can you argue with feelings? I mean, right. that's what it's <laughs> entirely subjective. Yeah, I mean, that's what kids have been doing since the dawn of time. Is this is how I feel? Well, good parents say, "Well, stop it." Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's not your feelings are not fact. Your true, they're not your truth. There is no such thing as your truth. There is just the truth. Amen, brother. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and and so we have to we we are living in an age, unfortunately, where there's just no resources to address this. The, confu- the only answer to confusion is truth. And so we have turned away from absolutes and truth, and now we are, everything is up for grabs, and it's amazing how even something as clear as gender and biological sex being the same thing has become this moral abyss of yeah. confusion. Anyway, that's where we are. Now, his... Uh, I want I want to call it you know redemption if you will from this confusion reminds me of a woman who I will name her I want to know if you know who this is Michael okay her name is Norma McCorvey do you know who she is does anyone online know who she is Norma McCorvey that that, uh, that name doesn't name her no, no not at all I don't think I know her how about the name Jane Rowe because Norma Norma McCorvey is Jane Rowe of Roe v. Wade? Yeah. Really? One and okay. the same. Okay. In 1969, at the age of 21, McCorvey became pregnant for her third time, and she returned to Dallas, where she had been raised, and friends advised her that she should assert falsely that she had been raped by a group of black men. Interesting. That it had to be black men. And she could thereby obtain a legal abortion under Texas law, which prohibited most abortions uh, with the exception of rape. Well, and, uh, anyway, she ended up becoming the, you know, the figurehead of the major court case, Roe v. Wade, that made abortion legal in this country nationwide. This I, think, is I think I know where you're going with this. Yeah. Well, that's 1969 that happens. 1973, Roe v. Wade 
law of the land now. Anybody can get an abor- any woman can get an abortion at any time, right? And she ends up becoming a lesbian, living with a woman for many, many years. And it's amazing how often the abortion and the pro-homosexual and the pro-transgender, uh, you know, doctrines always are on the same page. It's really amazing because yeah. what is it? It's the attack of, and what's under attack? It's the, it's the it's Satan's frontal attack on God's first commandment to humankind, which was what? Be fruitful and multiply. You can't multiply unless you are having sex with, you know, heterosexual union. So this is like Satan attacking God's very first command to man. And by the way, we need more humans on the planet, not less. I know there's this whole huge push. Humans are a big problem for global warming. Amazing how that also falls oh, into this. <laughs> humans are to blame for all the global warming problems, so we need less humans. As an abortion helps us to keep less humans on the planet. When everything in the scriptures is clear that we need more humans, not less, and we need to rule and subdue our, the earth. And, uh, and I wonder, and I think about the abortions that have happened since 1969, legally, since 1973, legally. I think it's up to 60 million children have been aborted in their mother's womb since 1973. And how many of them were future doctors, were future nurses, were future public school educators? How about this, United States of America? How many of those 60 million would have been viable, hardworking, tax-paying members of Generation X and uh, Y and Z or whatever these generations are now? How many of them would be paying into the Social Security system, which is about to go bankrupt right now? Uh, Oh, you can't talk about that. You can't talk about that. Oh, yeah, you can't talk about that. Oh, no, no, you just need to tax the rich more. If we had an entire, like, 60 million people, if you take 60 million people, put them on the, the, uh, into the workforce of this country, and they are paying Social Security tax, okay? Yeah. So the, the problem with Social Security being insolvent in the next 12 years is now solved. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) But what we want in this country, this is the problem with Americans. We want our cake and we want to eat it too. And we want to have all the fun and all the pleasures and all the freedoms of the world, but not the responsibility of the the world. And what are children? Children are a huge responsibility. And they are. And I, I have three children. I know this. But the point is that Satan has been attacking the, the propagation of the species, the human species, because we are his arch enemy. He hates us. But why? Because we're made in the image of God. And anyway, I could go on and on about that. I don't have too much time to do this. But anyway, Norma McCorvey, this is why I say she reminds me of James Jewell here, uh, she actually became a Christian. And she renounced uh, the lesbian lifestyle and then got baptized. And I think she was actually baptized in a Baptist church. By the way, you know how she was one to Christ? This is an amazing story. She was working at an abortion clinic and then an operation rescue clinic opened up next door. So a pro-life clinic opened up next door to an abortion clinic and she used to go out for smokes for breaks. Capitalism for the win, right? (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. Smoking for the win. Okay. Because the pastor who opened the Operation Rescue Clinic used to come out and smoke too. (laughs) So, 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 yes, God can use smokers. Okay. So they're chatting it up, chat, 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 smoking, and then they'd go their separate ways. And, you know, just in conversation, this pastor, the smoking pastor, (laughs) wins her to Jesus and she becomes a Christian and then she renounces. You know, lesbianism, she renounces the pro choice movement. She ended up becoming a champion of the pro life cause. She died, unfortunately, in 2017 at the age of nine, at the age of 69. But she um, is also of that 
you know, she goes down in history. Okay, here's a picture of her. She goes down in history as another one of those uh, people who came to their senses. God redeemed, God rescued from the lies of the enemy. I think it's a beautiful story. And it's why we teach and talk about these things on the deep end. You know why? Um, there was a great bishop in the 1900s name, in the Catholic Church. His name was uh, the Reverend Fulton Sheen. Do you remember that name? No. No, no. Great Catholic bishop. Great preacher. Uh, but he said very famously, marry the spirit of the age and you become a widow in the next. So when the church says, well, we're just going to adopt what the spirit of the age is today, uh, guess what happens? You become a widow in the next age. Why? Because one generation thinks the previous generation is nuts. And, this, and <laughs> it's always changing. Yeah. And it always dies. The spirit of the age always dies. Guess what still continues? The gospel, the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word. And uh, we want to keep teaching you the truth in this show, the deep end, so that you can be able to do what you're supposed to do, and that is speak the truth. Speak the truth in an age where there is no truth. Hey, let us know in the comments, if you're watching, where you're watching from. And by the way, I want to say this in the middle of the episode. If you're watching on Facebook, if you're watching on YouTube at Waters Church's YouTube, that's great, but put, could you please move over to youtube.com slash thedeependtv, uh, open up a new browser window or open up something else and go to youtube.com slash thedeependtv and then click subscribe and the notification bell there. Um, we want you to subscribe there and get notified by that. So if you could do that. Thanks for being here. We're going to be right back with the Book of Acts. The Deep End with Tim Hatch is made possible by contributions from listeners and viewers like you. If you'd like to partner with us to support this ministry, you can go to thedeepend.tv slash partner or on the Cash App with the cash tag TV. Okay, we are in the book of Acts, and now we are going to do a message here called Speak Up Church. Speak Up Church. And uh, in every generation, we need to learn how to speak up. We're in Acts chapter 6 and 7, and that is the title of the episode. And this is important for us today because, as we just talked about in the news, no matter what age the church has been in, it has always had to speak truth to power. It has always had to speak what is right to a culture that often thinks what we are saying is right wrong. So no matter where we are, we have to learn to do this. And I want to get right into it. So let's go to Acts chapter 6, verse 7. And here we're just going to re, kind of like repeat from last episode and reorient ourselves to what was going on. Remember, the church was having a conflict and the church raises up men to uh, distribute few, food equally. And one of these men is named Stephen. So we're going to just remember that because Stephen's speech is what we're going to talk about today. And the results, however, of picking those seven men to wait on tables, and these were men who were filled with the Holy Spirit and faith, uh, and they were chosen by the people. Uh, well, this solves the church's problem. We talked about that last episode, the church with conflict. And here was the final result of that conflict being resolved through these faithful men. Verse 7 of chapter 6 says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and many priests became obedient to the faith. And I love that result. The word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly 
in Jerusalem. Please don't miss how those two things go together. When the word of God increases, guess what happens? The number of disciples, did you see this? Look at that. Isn't that beautiful? The number of disciples multiplies. So here's the deal. Here's the simple equation. More word equals more Christians or disciples, really. We should call them disciples because that's what they're called here. And that is so important for us to understand before we get any further because this is why the deep end exists. We bring the word of God to you. In the old days, and I've said this many times on this show, we used to have Wednesday night Bible study, and I loved Wednesday night Bible study, but let's be honest, come on, coming all the way out to the church building and doing all this stuff and having kids ministry, that's a lot of work. Now, through the magic of technology, you can all sit at home in your comfortable living rooms, put this on your smart television, and watch it. And I encourage that. And what you're going to do is you're going to get God's Word in you. How do you, want to, how do you grow in Christ? You grow through the Word. And that's why we bring this content to you. So again, I want to emphasize, click the subscribe button, click the notification bell. We want to get this into you as often as we can. And thank you. And by the way, on the podcast app, if you can leave us a positive review on the Apple podcast app, that would help greatly. So head over there and do that. Anyway, here's where it goes on in Acts chapter 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So not just the disciples, not just the apostles are doing wonders and signs. Now you've got Stephen who was basically a waiter, basically in the food distribution business. He's doing wonders. He's doing signs among the people. Then, but look at verse 9, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So a couple of people are mentioned here in the text on purpose. First, the synagogue of the freedmen. Now, the word in Greek here is libertines. Libertines, which we get the word liberty from. It refers, however, to people who were Jews who had been taken captive by the general, the Roman general Pompey in, uh, in, BC, in 63 BC. He took these Jews into slavery uh, for many, many years, and then he, uh, he brought them off, hauled them off to Rome, and after a certain number of years, he released them, and they were freedmen. They were libertines, and they spread all around the world, but let's be honest, many of them were Jews, so where would you go if you were a faithful Jew and you really wanted God to work in your life, you went back to the promised land. You went back to Jerusalem. So they ended up in Jerusalem. They ended up starting their own synagogue. And they, it's just important that you understand that these are the people, the libertarian, the people who claim to be free are the ones now who are opposing Stephen's message. Isn't it always that way, even in our age today, the people who claim to be in the, working in the name of freedom, working in the name of you know, personal liberty, are the ones who suddenly become the totalitarians, the the opposition to freedom, because Stephen is about to preach a very freeing message. And the people who oppose him are the people called the freedmen, which is incredibly interesting and ironic at the same time. But that is how it has always happened. Nothing new. What's happening in our world today is nothing new. It's been happening since the dawn of time. Anyway, verse 11. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Now, those are false accusations. And verse 12, and they stirred up the people. All the same kind of, you know, context in which Christ is 
falsely accused and then crucified. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man, and you got to love the exaggeration here, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. And so this, you know, all the same attack against Jesus, Stephen is embodying what Jesus told his disciples. If they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. If they hate me, they're going to hate you. This is how it's been uh, for the Christian movement since Jesus died and rose again. Okay, going on, it says this. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, and by this place they this place they mean the temple, and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Okay, please look carefully at the accusation. He speaks against Moses. He speaks against this place, right? And he says that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, the temple, and will change the customs of Moses, blah, 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 blah. Okay, so these are their, these are their accusations. Now we come to what is perhaps one of the most important speeches. No, 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 not perhaps. What is one of the most important speeches in the book of Acts? The book of Acts moves along, we've talked about this in early episodes, through two things, miracles, signs, and wonders, and the preaching of the word. And it is just carrying on the ministry of Jesus because Jesus came and he worked miracles and he taught the word. And by the way, the same is true today. We should be praying and expecting God to work miracles amongst us and preach the word. That's what's going to make the gospel, that's what's, that's what's going to uh, make a church successful is God working supernaturally and the word of God being preached. Well, anyway, Stephen, Stephen's speech is the, almost the entire seventh chapter of Acts, and it is incredibly important. And I want to unpack why this speech matters. Why does Stephen's speech matter so much? Why does Luke devote 50 verses, basically, to Stephen's sermon here? I mean, if 50 sermons are dedicated in the Bible to a sermon, you've got to say that that sermon's probably pretty significant. And I want you to think about three things, why it matters. Number one, it helps us read the Old Testament rightly. A lot of Christians don't read the Old Testament rightly. A lot of Christians don't know how to read the Old Testament. And, and let me just say very clearly, because we have to understand this, that the Old Testament is not written to Christians. It's written for Christians, not to Christians. And so there's a lot of laws in the Old Testament, and we talked about this at, at our church on Sunday. There's a lot of laws in the Old Testament that I don't do, and I don't want to do, and I, don't, and I should not do. Uh, there's a law about stoning your children if they're rebellious. <laughs> and I said very funny, jokingly, I, sometimes I want to obey that law, but that's not written to me, and there's a reason for that law. In fact, Dennis Prager does a great treatment of that law, and he talks about the fact that that law, in the ancient context to which it was written, was the very first law prohibiting a father's rights over his own children's lives. In the ancient world, a father could kill his kid with impunity. And the scriptures come along, God says, no, you're not allowed to do that. You got to bring them before the elders of the, of the, of the community. And if they all agree that he's that rebellious, then you can stone him. It wasn't intended to stone children. It was intended to limit a father's um, uh, liberty in killing or executing capital punishment over his children's lives. But anyway, I digress. We don't read the Old Testament for moral absolutes anymore. Yes, 
there are still some moral absolutes in the Old Testament, such as do not murder, do not commit adultery. But what do they do? They go through the cross and they get more absolute through the cross because murder, do not murder becomes, do not become angry and do not hate your brother because hatred and anger lead to murder. Or adultery goes higher, the the, the level goes higher from adultery, the physical act of having sex with someone to whom you're not married, uh, with whom you're not married, to the level of don't even lust, don't even look lustfully, because that leads to adultery. So there are moral absolutes that are foundational in the Old Testament that are actually elevated in the New Testament, which don't get me started on giving and tithing. A lot of these Christians say, well, I'm under grace, so now I no longer have to tithe. Or the tithe is under the law. Actually, the tithe is not part of the law. The tithe comes before the law, way before the law, with Abraham and Melchizedek. So it has nothing to do do with the law. And if everything else, every other law in the Old Testament goes to a higher standard in the New Testament, why does giving suddenly go down to a lower standard? That doesn't make sense at all for the people who want to argue that they don't have to tithe or give that much anymore. No, the Old Testament has some foundational moral absolutes, but not eternal absolutes, not for the Christian church. And if you read the Bible rightly, you'll see that. Anyway, Stephen's speech helps us understand how should Christians, and you've got to know this, how should Christians read the Old Testament? We're going to talk about that. Number two, it reminds us that God's servant who brings God, God's word is often rejected. And that's going to be the theme of this speech. And it's going to be just kind of reinforcing what Jesus taught us and also what the Old Testament shows us is that in one generation... God sends his servant, and he is typically in that generation rejected, but in the following generations, he is revered and seen as a hero, which means it's always hard to speak truth to power because the culture to which you speak it doesn't want to receive it, but but desperately needs it. And then it improves culture, and then culture is thankful for that voice that it had. Anyway, finally, number three, why Stephen's speech matters is because it reinforces that personal encounter with God is always better than just religious observance. Religion does not save. Religion is not the path of salvation. So, with that in mind, let's get into the speech, but I want to break it down into three parts because it's long, 50 verses. Three parts. Part number one, Abraham to Joseph. Part number two, Moses. And then part number three, the temple. So those three parts, and there's really key that we understand. He narrates Israel's history and then interprets Jesus as the fulfillment of that history, therefore showing Christians how to rightly interpret the Old Testament. So let's get into it. Part one, Abraham to Joseph. And here's what he says. Part one, Abraham to Joseph. The high priest said, verse one of chapter seven, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The glory of God appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go to the land that I will show you. Okay, the first thing I want you to see that Stephen does, which is actually brilliant, is brilliant in that what does he do? Master communicators all do this. You want to be a communicator? You want to be a preacher? Or how about this? You just want to be able to share your, your faith effectively with people? Look what he does. He doesn't call them enemies. He says, brothers and fathers, respect and association. In other words, I am one of you. Brothers, I know what you're about. I am with you. I am you. Okay, and then fathers, respect. Hey, Christians, being a Christian witness does not give you the right to be a jerk. You should respect people, even if you disagree with them, even if they disagree with you. And then he says, hear me. I want you to listen. Just give me a chance to talk and share the story. And then notice how he's like, our father Abraham, 
Okay, we know the story. This is your your story is my story. If you want to effectively be a Christian witness in your culture, learn how to associate with people. Learn to share that you also as a Christian have the same faults, insecurities, you know, fears as non-Christians. It's just that Christ obviously is your strength. And I think that goes a long way. People can relate to that. And this is exactly what Stephen does in the first statement that he makes to these men about uh, their story. So he says, the God of glory appeared to Abraham. Where? In Mesopotamia. And that's important as well. So the God of glory appears in Mesopotamia because this is going to be the theme of his speech. And and that theme is this. God is not limited to the temple. God is not limited to Jerusalem or the land of Israel. And he's telling them, remember, Abraham, remember our father? Remember, you know the story. You've heard it. We're all children of Abraham. And Abraham became Abraham because God met him in a foreign land. So if God was able to meet Abraham in a foreign land, why are we so tied to the idea that God is only alive in this temple, only in this church or you know, religious structure? Okay, very important. So Mesopotamia, by the way, just so you know, is the, the word actually means between two rivers, uh, the land between two rivers. And so you have the Tigris River here. You have the Euphrates River here. And so this little area of land is the Mesopotamian area. And here was Abraham's journey. Okay, don't miss this either. He starts over here in Ur of the Chaldees, which is uh, Babylon, Babylonia, or the Babylon Empire, land of the Chaldeans. And he left and went north to Haran, uh, which is way north of Israel. And then God spoke to him in Haran, and he left Haran, and he came down to Shechem. That was Abram's journey. And uh, I want us just to take a look at verse 4 in chapter 7, because there's something interesting here about Abram's journey. Verse 4, Stephen says, Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran, and after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. Now, this is very interesting what Stephen does here. He gives us a little bit more clarity on the story of Abram's calling. I want us to look at Abram's calling in Genesis chapter 11 because it's also different from what Stephen describes here. So look what it says in Genesis chapter 11, 27. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram. So Abram's dad is Terah, or Terah. And then he has a brother named Nahor, and he has another brother named Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. We all know who Lot is. Lot is Abram's nephew through his brother Haran. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. Think about this now. Terah loses a son named Haran, in Ur of the Chaldeans, or Babylonia. And verse 39 says, And Abram and Nahor took wives, and it names the wives there. And then verse 31, it says this, Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Isn't that interesting? First off, it wasn't that Abram left father and kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans, as as we think. 
is actually Terah, or Terah, took Abram and Lot and Sarah and Lot's son, or his grandson, and left and went to Haran. And verse 32 of chapter 11 in Genesis says, the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, this is chapter 12, okay, right here, look at this. Now the Lord, this is chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. But remember, and this is so important that you understand this and, remember, and see this. This is so cool. Back in, cha- in verse 2 of uh, chapter 7 in, in the book of Acts, it says that the God of glory appeared to our father when he was in Mesopotamia. So let's put this map back. I hope I'm not confusing you, but let me just show you because this is so interesting to me. God speaks to Abram here in Ur of the Chaldeans. But it was Terah, not Abram, who leaves to go to Haran, only because he lost his son Haran, maybe. Maybe, maybe the loss of his son just kind of threw him over the top. There's another, there's another hypothesization that hypothesization, I think that's the word anyway. Uh, hypothesis that suggests that Terah was actually given the original call to leave, and he only got as far as Haran and he gave up. And he ended up dying there. So he actually could have been the father of faith, but he wasn't because he couldn't go all the way. But what I want you to see, and there's a reason why I'm bringing all this up, is that it wasn't actually, when, when Abram heard God's call on Ur, it's actually, he doesn't listen at first. It's Terah who takes him. His father takes him to Haran. Only when Terah dies does Abram finally go all the way to the land of promise. You say, Pastor, why are you pressing on this? What, what's the big deal? Here's the reason why this is important. Because it's, it's helpful to you. Even the great father Abraham had a hard time doing what God said at first. Does that resonate with anybody? <laughs> I hope this helps you. You know, sometimes we look 2020 with this 2020 vision on the heroes of the Old Testament. We think, man, they just obeyed God so well. They had such great faith. They just did everything so well. No, they didn't. Abram doesn't even listen. He has to have his daddy take him out of the land, and he doesn't even leave his father. You know, Genesis chapter 12 says, leave your father's house. He didn't do it. He had to, he had to have, he had to have uh, Terah take him to Haran, and only after his father died does he leave Haran and make it down into the land of promise. And, by the way, he did that at age 75, which tells me how much time had he wasted not obeying God's voice. And yet... In spite of all the wasted time, and in spite of the fact that he had to have his dad kind of help him out, God still used him. God's purposes were still realized in his life. Friend, I hope this helps you get over the mistakes that you've made in not listening to God in your past. Well, that's good preaching right there. I I do. I hope that this kind of heals those wounds, those self-inflicted wounds of your past that you think, man, if only I'd listened to God sooner, or why did I waste time, or why didn't I move when God said to move? Man, you can't worry about that. You can't put an old head on young shoulders. So you made those mistakes. So you didn't listen to God when you shouldn't have, should have. So you didn't follow as quickly as you should have followed. Okay, I get it. We've all done that to some extent. Even Father Abraham did it. And yet, in spite of his failure to first heed God's voice, God's word is ultimately completed in Abram. He becomes Abraham, the father of faith. And Stephen is preaching about him here in Acts chapter 7. 
Amen. I just close the door on that, but I just thought, I hope that helps somebody. I think that's going to heal somebody who's living with a bunch of regrets. Get over it and move forward in Jesus' name. God still has plenty of time left to get done in your life what he wants to get done. Okay, back to Stephen's speech. Verse 6, it says this, And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I would judge the nation they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. So Abram became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. Okay, all this stuff is just the narrative of faith that both Stephen and the religious leaders in Jerusalem who were against Stephen share. It's like, I'm with you. I'm one of you. Okay, going on. Verse nine. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph. This is, now this is the meat of this con- This first part. Verse 9. The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, what did they do? They sold him into Egypt. But God was with who? He was with Joseph. And God did what with Joseph? God rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Um, And then uh, it says, now there came, in verse 11, now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. Verse 12, but when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. Now look at this, verse 13, and on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Now, I hope you're catching this because it's, it's the underlying theme of Stephen's speech is this. Jesus is the true Joseph. Joseph's story is pointing to Jesus. Joseph was the beloved son of the father, um, Jacob, um, who his brothers hate, and they reject him because of that love and because of the favor from the father. And yet he becomes the one who ultimately saves them from death. Do you see? The story of Joseph is actually not for you to find out how to live your dreams or make your dreams come true, as I have heard countless preachers talk about. The story of Joseph is talking about Jesus. It is pre-shadow, prefiguring the message of Jesus, that Jesus is the beloved chosen son of the Father who is rejected by his brothers and yet in that rejection ends up becoming the source of salvation for his brothers. Isn't that cool? Because that's how the Bible works. That's how we rightly read the Old Testament. And on the second, and don't miss it, verse 13, on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. By the way, we talked about this in the book of Revelation last season on the deep end. When are the Jews going to finally, once and for all, come to saving faith in Jesus Christ? At his second coming. Isn't that so cool? On the second visit to Joseph, he made himself known. Guess what? Jesus came once, he's coming again, and the Jews are going to worship him. That's just, to me, that's just so cool. It's a little hidden gem here in Acts chapter 7, verse 13. Okay, verse 14. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob and his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. Going on. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. Verse 17. But as time of the promise, but as the time of the promise drew near, which God granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose a king 
over Egypt, another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. So this is, again, remember, this is our story. We've always been hated. Uh, we, we need to get out of Egypt. And, and so what does God do? How does God bring us out of Egypt? Well, that's part two, Moses. Moses becomes God's deliverer. Now remember, the charges against Stephen were, this man does not stop speaking against this holy place and the law, which was given by Moses, and he wants to change the customs that Moses handed over to us or delivered to us. And Stephen's like, no, 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 that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to tell you what Moses was pointing to. So part two, Moses, uh, the Moses portion of Stephen's speech. Verse 20. At this time, Moses was born. What time? While they were in Egypt in slavery. And he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and his deeds. And verse 23, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his what? There's another key theme again. He comes out to visit his brothers, who? Our people, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that this, he supposed, Moses supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But guess what? Same thing with Joseph. Just like Joseph was rejected by his brothers, guess what? Moses was rejected by his brothers. Picking up a theme here? This is a, this is a masterful sermon on Stephen's part because he's going to really wallop them in just a moment. Verse 26, and on the following day, uh, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Now, Stephen's predicate here is that Moses was God's deliverer, and yet the people of Israel rejected God's deliverer. Who are you, Moses? Get away from us. We don't want you here. That's what our fathers did to Moses, as Stephen is saying. And then verse 28, do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And at this Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Verse 30, now when 40 years passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came a voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Moses now, he says, the chosen man, experiences the presence of God. Where? At, in the wilderness, on Mount Sinai. So remember, the issue for the Jews was you only, worship the God, you only worship God, you only meet with God in the temple. And this guy is trying to question the authority or the authenticity of the temple worship experience, the religious practice. This man, Stephen. But Stephen's like, don't you guys remember? First, the presence of God showed up in Mesopotamia and found our father, Abram. And then he showed up again in the wilderness, in the middle of nowhere on Mount Sinai for Moses. So don't tell me that God only shows up at this temple when our entire human, our entire history is predicated on the fact that God comes and finds these people where they are at. Anyway, so beautiful. Moses uh, meets God on Sinai, verse 33. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. That was holy ground. Why? Because God's presence was there. 
Not necessarily the temple. That place became holy ground because God made himself known there. Verse 34, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now I come, I will send you to Egypt. Now, he really starts to hammer it home. He's like, this Moses, verse 35, this Moses, look at this, whom, you, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and judge? This man, God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the, in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt, in the Red Sea, in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. What a masterful sermon. I, no one could write a better message than this for these guys. Remember, guys, he's talking to religious Jewish leaders who are saying uh, that Jesus is not the, 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 the Messiah. They've rejected him. They just put him on a cross uh, probably two years earlier by this time in Acts chapter 7. And he's like, don't you, don't you read our history? In every generation, we have rejected the very one that God sent to save us. And guess what? It just happened again. Only this time, not with a prophet, not with a holy man, but with the son of the living God. And so he's like, you guys got to remember, this is our story. Verse 38, going on. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. What did Moses do? He received the living oracles. He received God's word to give to us. Basically, implication. Jesus has received the word of God to give to us. He is the word of God given to us. Verse 39, our fathers refused to obey him and thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And that's another, uh, just another thrust of the gospel knife into their hearts. He's saying, basically, remember that our fathers not only wanted to reject Moses, they wanted to go back to Egypt. They wanted to stay where they were. As he's trying to deliver them, they're begging to go back. Implication. You guys want to go back to old, useless, uh, Levitical priesthood systems, and Jesus, the fulfillment of all that, has come to save you from that and bring you back to God. And you are just like our fathers. You are acting just like them, trying to go back to religious ritual when God wants to have a living relationship with you. Verse 41, and they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and rejoicing in the work of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as is it written in the book of the prophets. And this is Amos, he quotes, the book of Amos. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? Answer is no, you weren't worshiping me in the wilderness. You wanted to go back to Egypt. And then he kind of fast forwards here, way past the wilderness, way past even Solomon. He says, you took up the tent of Molech and the star of your god, Raphan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Now, that, that's a big swath of history he just covers there. But he's basically saying, not only did you not serve the living God in the wilderness, but guess what? Even after you were established as a nation and powerful and prosperous after Solomon, then you started to follow the pagan practices of the nations around you. This has been your history since your formation. And, and by the way, Molech was the god that the Canaanites worshipped, and how did they worship him? Very important that you understand this. They worshipped him by giving their young infant children to him in fire sacrifice. The ancient Canaanites believed that you needed to sacrifice children in order to prosper. Hello, 2020 America. 
We need to sacrifice children to prosper. Abortion lobby and all this stuff. And humans are to blame for climate change. And so less humans means a better planet. That's all, all that stuff is a spirit. It's not a political movement. It's a spirit. It comes from the evil one who hates God's original intention for mankind to be fruitful, multiply, to rule and subdue the earth, and to be blessed. And the, I'm telling you, I know this for a fact, the best way to make a great impact on the world is to get married and have children and raise them in the faith. You want to make an impact in the world? Raise Christian children. Anyway, that's what they were doing in the wilderness. That's what Israel was doing, worshiping Molech, sacrificing their children, not worshiping God. He says, this is who we were. This is our story. Now, part three, the temple. So he takes down their, their adulation of Abram. says, Abraham met God in Mesopotamia. He takes down their adulation of Moses. He says, Moses, remember Moses was the guy that God sent to our fathers, and they rejected him. So he takes on the temple in verse 44, and here's what he says. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in to the land with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. Fast forwarding now, verse 47, but it was Solomon who built a house for him, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. What's he doing? In other words, it wasn't the temple and the religious sacrifices that brought us into this land. It was God's presence symbolized by those things that brought us into this land. In other words, it is not religious practice that saves. It is God who saves. And, he, and we follow him. Verse 49, he quotes Solomon. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what kind of... What is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? He basically quotes word for word from Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 8, saying, even after Solomon dedicated this place to the worship of God, he stood there and said, yeah, but you know what? Uh, God made everything. The God we serve can't be limited to a house that we make. I mean, how ridiculous is that? He's the God of heaven and earth. And so basically he's taking on their their. Uh, idolatrous worship of their religious system. Verse 47, but it was Solomon. Uh, oh, sorry, I already read that. Verse uh, 51. Now, now he's going to really let them have it. You stiff-necked people. <laughs> and they would have known that phrase from the Old Testament. Exodus 33, 3. Go to the land flowing with milk and honey. I will not go with you. You are a stiff-necked people. Exodus 34, verse 9. If I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go into the midst of us, for I know this is a stiff-necked people. Uh, Deuteronomy 9:13. Furthermore, the Lord said to me, I have seen this people. Behold, it is a stubborn, stiff-necked people. I mean, they knew that phrase from the Old Testament scriptures. And now he's taking that phrase and he's applying it to them. And he says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did so to you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have not betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Wow. What, what a master class on sermons. What a master class on preaching. He he doesn't shy away. He doesn't coddle them. He doesn't tickle their ears. He basically says, don't you see 
What's wrong with us? You, don't you see? You're just like your fathers. They rejected the people God sent to them. Joseph, Moses, the temple, they rejected all that. And you have now rejected the fulfillment of Joseph's story, the fulfillment of Moses' story. You've rejected the, 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 the archetype of those stories, Jesus Christ. You're stiff-necked and you're resisting the Holy Spirit, and this is what we have always done. And it's always what humans have done. Humans reject God. Christians who get upset with non-Christians acting like non-Christians. Why? They reject God. They re- the human heart is evil, the Scripture has talked about. We are born in sin. We are born rebellious to God. What's the answer? The answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ that when preached through the Holy Spirit pierces into that heart and breaks it open with the good news of Jesus. Only the gospel can do this. Not arguing, not debating, not fighting. Gospel. So uh, Stephen preaches the word. He challenges them. And the response is, They all fall down on their faces and they clap and they say, what a great sermon we heard today. Wow, this church is on fire. (laughs) No, that's not their response at all, is it? Verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. In other words, he preached the truth and they hated it. Let me just say something that needs to be said. Be careful that you do not judge the content of the message by the response of the hearer. Be careful. Jesus at one point told the people the absolute truth that he was the bread of heaven. And everyone except the 12 disciples walked away. John chapter 6. Sometimes the gospel is proclaimed and the majority reject it. You say, well, how come sometimes it's the opposite? I don't know. That's just how it is. It's always, that's always how it's been. But I know what the problem was here. I know what the problem was here in Acts chapter 7. And it's this. You can become so attached to religious observance, you miss the Lord Jesus Christ in the, in the observance. And that's exactly what the Jews did in Acts chapter 7. They were so attached to their temple. They were so attached to their rituals. They were so attached, by the way, to the power that they had to lose in being these religious professionals. They could not have their eyes opened to see the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they reject. They reject. I think it's easier for someone who's rebellious, who's who's sinful, who's a mess, who's been divorced and remarried and divorced and remarried, who's been on drugs, who's lived a, 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 a terrible lifestyle, I think it's easier for them to come to saving faith in Christ Jesus than it's easier for religious people to come to saving faith in Christ Jesus. I really think that Scripture bears that out again and again and again. The prodigal son story. The one son goes and lives a lavish, reckless lifestyle. He's the one that comes back, and the one who stayed dutifully observant to the Father's rules is outside the house at the end of that story, rejecting 
the celebration of the, of the son coming home. Scripture teaches us this. Jesus said that the prostitutes and the tax collectors enter into the kingdom of heaven before you, you religious professionals. Uh, I say this in an area that is New England, where we are steeped in religious tradition, steeped in religious observance. And yet, we are the least biblically-minded area in the nation. All the studies and all the research proves what I'm saying is true. We've got high, towering steeples on every main street in New England. And yet, we are the least biblically knowledgeable people in the United States. It's hard for people steeped in religion to see Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 7. Verse 58. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, how do we, by the way, how do we know that Luke accurately reported all this? Do you know why? Because Luke became an associate of Saul, who became Paul. And, and so Paul, Saul was there watching this. And, and, and by the way, Saul is one of those people who could not argue with Stephen. Remember, that's what it says in the very first in, in, in chapter 6, they couldn't argue. So Saul, who was so religiously scholastic, who himself says, I was excelling beyond my peers, says, when I saw Stephen's speech, I couldn't, I couldn't argue with him. The Holy Spirit in this waiter, the Holy Spirit in this table waiter, put my knowledge and intellect to shame. I couldn't argue with him. That's cool. And so they put their coats in his, at his feet, Verse 59, and as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. I, I really love the way Stephen dies here. He doesn't die hating his enemies. He doesn't die hating those who hate him. He dies in the love of Jesus Christ. So basked, so saturated in the love of Jesus, he's got no hatred in his heart. Stephen's death reminds us that violent deaths and blood have always been the cost of bringing the gospel to the masses. This has been the case throughout church history. I think of two men, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, key members of the Reformation in England in the 1500s. Today we have a cocktail at our bars named for these guys, named for the situation these guys found themselves in. I want to tell you about this. This is cool. There's a little, a little drawing here of what happened to them. They were burned at the stake in the 1500s. And in the 1500s, England was fluctuating back and forth between Protestant faith and Catholicism, state-sponsored state Catholicism and the Reformed church state. The Reformers wanted to get the Bible in the hands of the masses. The Reformers wanted, to, wanted people to take the Lord's Supper without all the religious qualifications. In other words, the Reformers wanted to create people who had a living relationship with Jesus instead of bringing them back to the dead, dried-up religious ritual that had become, at that time anyway, the Catholic, Catholic faith, the, the Catholic system. Now, unfortunately, there's a lot of politics to this. It was all about King Henry VIII and what marriage did he want to get out of. <laughs> So he kept swinging the country back and forth. Catholicism one day, you know, Reformed faith the next, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, we have the Anglican faith today because of this guy. Well, Henry VIII died, and his daughter Mary I, who we now call Bloody Mary, okay, she assumed the throne, and she reestablished Catholicism as the national religion, and she threw Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley into jail until they would confess 
and their sins uh, and recant their confessions of Reformed faith. During her five-year reign, Mary, this is why she's called Bloody Mary, had over 280 religious dissenters burned at the stake. Religious dissenters being people who said, it is not the Catholic system that saves you. It is relationship. It is personal repentance and faith in Christ Jesus that saves you. She had those people killed, 280 of them. And, uh, you know, of course, she's known as Bloody Mary today. Well, Nicholas uh, Ridley and Hugh Latimer refused to recant, and, October, and on October 16, 1555, they were strapped to a stake, and they were burned to death. And while they were being strapped to the stake, Ridley turned to Latimer and said, Be of good cheer, brother, for God will either assuage the fury of the flame or else strengthen us to abide in it. And as the bundle of sticks caught fire beneath them, Latimer had his turn, raising his voice so Ridley could hear. He cried, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light a candle by God's grace in England, as I trust shall never be put out. And they died. They died doing what? They died trying to get the common man to hear the good news of salvation in Jesus apart from the religious institution. They died in the same manner in which Stephen died. Three years later, after their death, Queen Mary I died and passed the kingdom on to her half-sister Elizabeth, who was a Protestant queen. And Latimer and Ridley's candle burst into a torch, set England on fire, and eventually set on fire some travelers, you should know them here in America. They were called pilgrims, Puritans. They came to this country to establish and carry on that, that, that great torch of religious liberty. We have America today because of those guys standing for truth. Today in Oxford, England, there stands this memorial to Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, right in the middle of Oxford. They were burned alive there in 1555, and now today they are memorialized generations later. It's amazing. Speak truth to power, church. You might be hated in your generation, but guess what? God has the final word, and you'll be honored and revered in future generations. What does Stephen's speech say to us today? Number one, God's presence is not limited to geography, building, or religious ritual. That's good news for anybody who doesn't fit the Christian stereotype. Number two, the Christian faith always faces the real danger of becoming empty ritual. Never let our type of Christianity become a stumbling block for people God wants to reach with the gospel. And number three, the gospel is always on the move. The gospel is always on the move to further and farther places and to different kinds of people. That's why our church here in North Attleboro is starting a church in Guatemala. We're starting a church in Fall River, Massachusetts. We're starting a church in Florida. The gospel is on the move. We've got to go. We can't stay where we are. We've got to go. I'm excited about it. I hope you're excited about it. I hope you're part of a church. If you're not, I hope you come to our church and be a part of a gospel movement. That's the episode, everybody. Glad you were here. Join us every week on the deep end, 7 p.m. Tuesday nights. Again, can't stress this enough, youtube.com slash thedeependtv. Like and subscribe and click the notification bell so that your phone tells you when we're live. You don't want to miss an episode. It is with great pleasure that I bring this to you every week. Check us out at thedeepend.tv. I'm Tim Hatch, and this was The Deep End.
Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Deep End Podcast. We pray it helps you grow in your faith and in your walk with Christ. If you don't already have a home church, we invite you to come out to one of our campuses this weekend. Check us out at waterschurch.org to find a location near you and a service time that fits your schedule. Make sure to stay tuned for next week's episode of The Deep End Podcast.